Hello and welcome to The Appetite, a podcast brought to you by Opal Food and Body Wisdom, an eating disorder treatment center in Seattle, Washington. I'm your host, Carter Umhow, a therapist, artist, and writer. And today we're returning to our conversation with Opal co-founder and nutrition director, Julie Church, about the BMI, or body mass index. Last week, we talked about the history of the BMI, how it went from a Belgian astronomer's search for the average person to a widely used measure of general health. We reached out to you all on Instagram asking for questions from listeners about the BMI, and today we'll be answering some of those questions. So let's jump back into our conversation with Julie. I want to start, as we've been talking about the medical world, about kind of how someone should approach doctors. Um, so there were, we got a lot of questions around, like, why, if the BMI is proven not to be such a good measure of health, do doctors still use it? And then also, like, how can I go to the doctor and respond to them when they maybe say that I'm overweight or they're using a BMI to measure my health? What do I do? Yeah. Okay. So hopefully one of my earlier statements around just the systematizing and like simplifying of medical care is one of the reasons, right? So shorter visits and all that stuff, right? So that's one thing. As to why it's being used, I also do believe that the the way and my my I've been told this by people that have graduated from medical school in the last decade-ish, 20, 10 to 20 years or so, is that they are being told the that weight is causing health concerns. Like, and so we need to address that as a main place to change, like help people with lifestyle changes that then will help improve health. And what my understanding is in the medical, um, at least in the, the environment of medical school, is that it's not getting questioned or really teased apart to understand the nuances of that. They just go with the this is true. Therefore, we always need to help people get back to the quote unquote normal category in the BMI, you know. Mm-hmm. And the, the other piece to why is it used is that in the statistical extremes, there can be health consequences to being significantly in the underweight, you know, or lower than is natural for somebody. So even getting out of the language of BMI, just thinking like, okay, for this human being I'm with right now, their body is right now lower than what it was naturally designed to be. Or it's, then that's, you know, extremely lower or it's extremely higher than maybe how it was naturally designed to be. So both of those places in the medical literature, you can find ways that there's more of a direct causation there of going, wow, okay, if this body is under, like, simply underweight, then the body mass doesn't have enough muscle to have that heart be strong and have there be good cardiovascular health, right? Or on the extreme of the the high end is like, okay, this body might have some body mass that is putting pressure on a particular organ, and that is actually causing some inability of that organ to function appropriately. Okay, so we've got these like actual causations that even in the health at every size community and weight neutral community, like we're not, we don't disagree with that. Right. But what's happened is that people have generalized those and moved it. If you look at the bell curve of the BMI, like generalized those concerns and brought it all the way to the middle, essentially. And then kind of go, oh, okay, well, if I'm overweight, um, then I'm going to have, it is impacting my my health. And that's where there is not good causation data because there's all these other factors that are impacting the health. But when we get to the nitty-gritty on these extremes, we can get to the like, yep, the body mass on either extreme is specifically impacting health. 
If if you could give advice to someone that was yes. that went into the doctor's office and they were told like, hey, you know, I've looked at your chart, I've calculated this, and it yeah. looks like you're overweight. Yeah. Yeah. What would you instruct that person to say other than maybe find a new doctor? I don't know. Yeah. It's hard to find doctors that aren't going to do that. Exactly. uh, My first point of advice is to kind of respond with a, what are your concerns about it? What are you thinking is linked to that or could be caused by that? I want to understand what you're concerned about. Yeah. And Oftentimes, the concern is just literally the, the weight. The number itself. It's That's yeah. all the concern is. They don't have, you know, then they're going to say, they're going to rattle off a bunch of stuff that's related to all of this bad interpretation of research. Rather than And using the correlation versus causation, right? So, okay. But that's one thing. So asking, what are your concerns? Then the other thing is to say, oh, okay, so if you're concerned about that for me, how else would you know if you were concerned? Like, if I was in a smaller size body... What would highlight your concern for me about mm-hmm. that? If, if it wasn't about my body, is there anything else that you think would highlight a concern that maybe would confound the fact that I'm at high risk? Mm-hmm. When somebody gets an initial weight loss recommendation and says, your BMI is too high, you need to go and lose weight, one of my other responses is to say, okay, thank you. What else would you recommend to me if I was in a smaller size body and I came in with this knee pain or I came right. in with this back pain or I came in with this head cold. <laughs> I laugh because people get weight loss interventions for head, head cold, cold uh, you know, Jeez, coming to the doctor. Please. But anyways, what what else would you recommend to me if I was in a smaller size body? So that then people can in a larger size body not be missing the full scope of intervention that would be given to somebody that would be in a smaller size body. I love body. that. So. I love that. Okay, so this is a totally different realm, but I would love to know a kind of the eating disorder treatment application of the this information. Yeah, there were a, lot- I, a lot of my examples have been more kind of primary care, right? Yeah, and yeah. and of course on our Instagram we got a lot of questions around like, how does this thing make sense about my experience in treatment, or what about yeah. this thing, or yeah, totally, yeah. So as you know, a provider in eating disorder treatment um, and an owner of an eating disorder treatment center, the reality is we still are collecting weight and height data. Um, the calculation of BMI automatically happens in our health records, our health electronic health records. And then that information is in people's charts and that gets sent to insurance companies and it's there. And the reality is that those systems that we're a part of still ask for the BMI. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, a lot of the parameters for who gets treatment and who doesn't, there's a there's still a lot of mainstream ideology around weight being centric and that, well, gosh, if somebody is uh, supposedly underfeeding themselves, then their body weight should be on the underweight category in the BMI. There's no way that it should be in any of the other categories. And so then there's misinterpretation of that data and there's mistrust of a client's report or disbelief that treatment is necessary, honestly. So that's meaning, right, they're acknowledging, wow, this person might be in a larger size body and they are reporting underfeeding themselves. Mm, I don't think so. So we are still in that system. And in order to have people get care, we still have to give them some of the information that they are asking for. Now, we push really heavily um, to communicate and push through some of the weight bias and size discrimination that comes through. And the, the 
what we believe is the the poor application of the BMI in assessing health and progress in terms of eating disorder recovery. Yeah. And just to advocate for Opal in that position, oh. like I, I know how much happens even in terms of like advocating for more insurance coverage mm-hmm. for a client, like mm-hmm. the, the amount that needs to be explained and and fought for yeah. is um, is massive and yeah. really well thought through. Mm-hmm. Totally. But when it comes down to the client's experience, if somebody comes in in a larger size or in a smaller size body, and there is implica- there's opportunity for them to, in their treatment experience, have them start to eat adequately, have weight gain happen on their body. We have seen the ethics. There's ethical data to back up to say like we can actually have that happen in a treatment contained treatment environment, and we see that they can safely and sustainably maintain that weight while taking care of themselves well, feeding themselves adequately, and you know moving the whatever you know mental health, all that stuff. Yeah. So, and in that, the weight gain itself isn't is actually often an indicator of greater health right. happening. So that's kind of going with that, like, well, that heart muscle is underfed. So we need to make sure that muscle has the proteins and the amino acids to get muscle strength so that it's functioning functioning at its, at its peak. Yeah. We're able to see a lot more health markers improve at that point and move out of uh, category. Now, what we see is that for some of those people, honestly, they might come into treatment with us and they're in the overweight category, but they're what's in the literature is beginning to be called weight suppressed. So that is not actually where their weight should be. In our refeeding experience with them, they're going to gain some weight, and they might end up in the BMI of the obese category. But that's actually where their health markers, in terms of lab results and things like that, actually do improve. And we can see the under, you know, that. so that's something, too. It's like it's not always on the lower end that we see that benefit of mm-hmm. the weight gain, but that we definitely see the benefit <laughs> of right. if somebody has done things in the terms of their eating disorder behaviors that have led their body to be lower weight than they should be, that we then in treatment can feed them in a way and help them feed themselves in a way that then is going to have their body mass change and increase, which then improves their health markers. Mm-hmm. So that's coming from that side. But then the question becomes, well, wait, you're forcing that to happen, kind of, quote unquote, like you might be giving them more food or whatever. But well, some people in some of the questions on Instagram implied this of like, well, but shouldn't you then be doing the same thing when somebody comes in that's in a larger size body? And shouldn't you be sort of, quote unquote, forcing them also to lose weight? And that's you're shaking your head. Yeah. Yeah. It's upsetting. (laughs) Yeah. So but that is where we don't see any ethics to forcing them to eat in a certain way. That then has them lose body mass because there's no improvement in health long term for that. So we don't know of a safe, sustainable way to lose the weight and keep it off other than consistent eating disorder or long-term chronic dieting. And Which, you can yeah. look at the – yeah, we the, the National Health Registry has like a, a – collection of people that have been quote unquote successful dieters. And the thing that sucks about it is it's one year. Oh. Which that's not even that's not. I, I want by five years, that's where most people have regained the weight and um have negative health implications from the yo-yo dieting of the back and forth of weight. So it's not even an accurate registry, but whatever. So that's something you could look into that more. But all that to say we don't see the ethics, we don't have an ethical way to have somebody lose weight. We don't see there's health benefit to that sustainably in long term. So then we don't do it. We don't do it. Right. I hear that as like actually really equal treatment for the person that is underweight and the person that would be categorically overweight. Mm-hmm. Both people need to eat food yeah. 
to be nourished and yep. improve their health. Yep, totally. And we're not going to look at the markers of weight, height, BMI to decide if somebody's well. We're going to look at their actual life, their, mm-hmm. their health markers, some other health markers, right, um, at the blood level or their mental health status, like these other things that then right. give us indication of like, is this is this the way that one can eat? Yeah. <laughs> and, yeah. Or is this the way that somebody can sustain life? So. Absolutely. That was the second part of our two-part series on BMI. To hear more about the history of BMI, you can check out our previous episode. Thanks for joining us today. And if you want to follow along with Opal, make sure you stay in touch through social media on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at Opal Food and Body. If you want to learn more about Opal's programming or our community events, go to opalfoodandbody.com. Thank you so much to Daniel Gunther at Jackstraw Cultural Center for Sound Engineering, to Aaron Davidson for the Appetite's original music, and to Hans Anderson for editing. Thanks for joining us. Talk to you soon.